Welcome to Pragmatic. Pragmatic is a weekly discussion show contemplating the practical application of technology. Exploring the real-world trade-offs, we look at how great ideas are transformed into products and services that can change our lives. Nothing is as simple as it seems. This episode is sponsored by Typeform. Typeform makes it easy to build and share beautifully designed online forms, combining human creativity with the power of modern cross-device web technology to create new ways of asking questions online. I'm Ben Alexander, and my co-host is John Chigi. How are you doing, John? Yeah, I'm doing good. How are you doing, Ben? Doing well. Awesome. Good news. Okay, so I'd just like to open the show, as always, with a thank you to all of our listeners who said great things about the show on Twitter, app.net, and iTunes. We're still getting uh, lots of reviews uh, and also um, nice articles I've written on their own, uh, own sites about the show. We do read them all, the ones that we can find. And uh, it inspires me to sort of to keep going. So again, thank you for that. And specifically, I just wanted to um, uh, to mention uh, Benjamin Heron, who uh, has said some very kind words on future commentary. There's a link in the show notes if you're interested in checking out his site. So I appreciate that. Also, the survey uh, it's ran for a bit a bit longer than I thought it would, but that's okay. I've, I have closed it now. I have plenty of results, and I just want to say thank you to everybody that took the time to fill in the survey. So I just wanted to quickly cover what was in the results. And I'm going to, I've tweeted some of this already, but in case you don't follow the, the Twitter feed, least popular episode was about safety, and the most popular was the battery problem. The interesting thing, I, of course, I have a couple of theories about the safety thing, and uh, it's, inter- it's, it's, it's interesting. I'll let you draw your own conclusions, but in any case, like, that's what the numbers said. And uh, we will be covering more about uh, the electrical grid in an upcoming episode. So uh, we will be extending uh, that conversation on the battery problem as a new episode. It comes a point where there's enough follow-up related to that where we draw a line and it'll be a fresh topic. So so that is in the, in, in the pipe work. So there will be more of that coming. Now, obviously, there's going to be a, a bit of an, an even spread of people that liked specific topics, and, and that's fine. And if you take out all of those that gave everything 10 out of 10, and there were actually quite a few that people that really passionate about the show, obviously, and put in 10 out of 10 for every episode, which you know I, I, I appreciate that and everything, but it doesn't sort of give me a, ba- a balance. So I sort of take those out, and of the ones, that the responses that were left, uh, there are essentially, uh, I would say, two groups. So uh, one group was uh, the people that enjoyed the historical, highly technical, detailed shows and those that liked the significantly less technical shows. So I thought that uh, the split there, though, interestingly, I thought it was going to be more uh, leaning towards the technical content shows, but I was quite surprised. There was actually quite an even balance there in those two groups. So I honestly think that the topic mix that we're covering uh, on, on the show is, uh, seems to be okay. But uh, I will be doing a few more technical ones just to try and keep it all sort of uh, as balanced as I can. So in any case, uh, people also had a whole bunch of really good ideas for topics in future shows. So again, a special thanks to all those people that responded with uh, with suggestions for future shows. There's a there's quite a little quite a bit of overlap there, and in fact, today's episode is one of them that was listed multiple times. I do want to add something though about the uh, the survey. I actually copped a little bit of flack from uh, some listeners who said that the survey was presumptuous and assumed that everyone had listened to every episode. 
the fact is I actually intentionally did that. The reason that I have is that I'm I'm interested in targeting listeners that listen to the show more religiously, in other words, to every episode. Even if they would listen in to the first 10 minutes or so and thought, okay, this one's not for me and turned it off, then that's still of interest to me as opposed to someone that simply reads the title and says, well, I'm not interested in that topic and doesn't even bother starting the show. So that that was intentional, and I do appreciate the fact that there are some people that were frustrated because they had to fill in everything. But uh, in any case, uh, that was why I did what I did. Of course, it's always possible that the people that did listen to only a few episodes and then they stopped or they didn't listen to them at all and filled out the form as if they had listened to them. I mean, obviously, I can't stop that. So obviously, no system is perfect, but that's the joy of of surveying people. So uh, not not the first survey I've, I've, I've done and went, well, probably won't be the last. I'm not going to do too many more on, on the show, though. I have decided that much, but still. Um, again, thanks, everyone, for filling it in. And... Um, and honestly, I have to mention that I know that they're a sponsor, but the fact is that Typeform really made it easy to do. And I was quite, I was, I'm not just saying that because they're a sponsor. That really, really was quite good. So honestly, if you are going to do any sorts of uh, anything like a survey uh, on the internet, then geez, just check them out. It's worth checking out. So without further ado, today's episode, I guess I could, I'd like to sum up in a, in a phrase and I, I think of it as one man's hopes and dreams, all in an RF bubble. And I specifically am talking about P-Cell, which stands for personal cell. Now, I was asked to cover this by over a dozen fans of the show and quite strongly in in many cases. So I'm sort of, this is the first time that I've really taken... um, feedback from listeners and said, okay, I'm going to do this topic. Now, before we even begin... I need to set these ground rules, and the ground rules are simple. Most of my um, experience in radio has been through amateur radio, which has mainly been narrowband systems, so mainly voice or narrowband data, uh, telemetry systems, uh, and so on as well in my my professional career recently. They're all narrowband systems. In terms of spread spectrum signals, wideband signals, uh, I did all of my work in CDMA when I was working at Nortel. Since I left Nortel in 2001, I haven't done much in the actual RF development. I've, I've sort of kept in touch with it. I've kept in touch with LTE in recent years and how it goes together, how it works. But P-Cell is more of a, more of a comp technology, which stands for a coordinated multipoint transmission. And that's something I'll go into during the episode. But it's something that I've only really started reading about in earnest two weeks ago. So... Keep in mind, P-Cell is not a publicly available product. No one has pulled this apart. No one has dissected it. No one actually knows, other than the people working at Artemis, presumably, exactly how this thing works. So I will do the best that I can to explain how it is believed that this, this technology works. And I guess we'll have to agree to, to leave it at that point. And I can foresee in six or 12 months' time when more information comes to light that we may or may not have to revisit it based on as more facts come to light. So if we accept all that going in, I guess we can dive in. So ready to dive in there, Ben? Yes, let's do it. All right. First of all, I want to start, before I start, by asking you, how much have you heard about P-Cell? I've heard it's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. And I've heard it's 
too good to be true. Um, All right. Those are the two things I've heard, more or less. Summed up. I watched the video. Oh. I checked out the site. Uh, so when you say you watched the video, which video did you watch? There are quite oh. a, there are about five of them in total. Um. Well, let me... So there was one that was about an hour long, and that was his Columbia University uh, No, I didn't watch it. I just did the... Uh, All right. There's the, five... The watch the video that's on the Artemis homepage. I didn't watch the yeah. whole big long one. Because... Okay, so there's, there's, there's a three-minute long clip. Yeah. Um, uh, it was like an ad, advertor, advertisement, an extended advertisement, uh, or advertisement, whatever you want to pronounce it. Anyway, and then you had a couple of five minutes and a 10-minute one with actual demos in an office. All right. So... What is P-Cell? Well, P-Cell, according to Artemis, the, the company Artemis that's going to be you know, selling this product, is a DIDO system. It's a distributed input, distributed output. Now, that's not an industrial term. This is a term that they coined. They, as in Artemis, coined. Now, Artemis is headed by a guy by the name of Steve Perlman. Now, I'll forgive you for not remembering who he is. Uh, if you've been involved with OnLive, uh, then that streaming uh, game okay. service. Mm-hmm. He was the uh, original man behind that. Right? Didn't they? Um, didn't they go under? They had problems. Yeah. So the thing when I was reading some of these articles is that you know Steve Perlman is no stranger to disrupting industries. And I thought to myself because a few a few articles led like that, uh, and I'm like, well, do you actually have you read this guy's history? So a little bit about Steve Perlman to start with. And I'm just, I guess before I get stuck into that, let's just quickly frame the episode here. Uh, I'm going to break this up into four pieces. The first bit, we're going to talk a little bit about Steve himself. Second bit, I want to do some critique of the demonstrations that they performed. Uh, the third thing I want to do is I'm going to just quickly critique uh, Imran Akbar's article that was linked to by Marco Arment. And finally, I'm going to go through a bit of a walk through the different technologies of multiple access in mobile, which leads us up to P-Cell and the understanding of how it works. So just quickly about Steve Perlman, the man himself. Now, I've done something a little bit uncharacteristic here. I've linked to The Verge and there is a link. Oh, I know. There's a link in the show notes that actually does a very good job of describing how badly he managed the on-live venture. And it's it makes for an interesting, article, yeah, yeah. It is it is quite a good read, and as far as I'm aware, it's the best um, anecdote. Hang on, it's the best description of what happened that I could find. Doesn't mean there isn't a better one there, but it's the best one I could find. So, if you're interested in about the man in recent times, then that's worth looking at. It's also odd to look that people looking at him as a successful entrepreneur since he was also behind web TV that Microsoft threw $500 million back uh, at uh, back in April to uh, 97. And that, that uh, MSN TV uh, was recently shut down through, you know, lack of interest, lack of, lack of anything. So it's not like any of the products that he's put together has had any kind of enduring impact. Some people have said, oh, he was ahead of his time. Yes, well, okay, but I mean, commercially, the Macintosh was ahead of its time, and commercially, it was more successful than anything that you know Steve Perlman did. But speaking of Apple, there's a crossover there. In his early years, he spent a couple of years at Atari, and then he spent five years at Apple. Uh, I think it was between eighty-five and ninety. But after that, his roles were less and less technical. So he's become more of an entrepreneur after that. 
So in any case, irrespective of what you may think about this man, his background, his credibility, primarily wanted to focus on the technological side of what his latest venture, which the company is now um, called, is called Artemis, uh, of his latest venture and what they've come out with. So draw your own conclusions about the man. Let's talk about the tech. So in February, in other words, last month, about four or five weeks ago, Steve announced a new technology that they're calling P-Cell, for short for personal cell. And they were saying it was going to take telecommunications world by storm. His company, Artemis, was developing little devices that they called P-Waves, miniature radio cell towers of a, of a sort that could be placed anywhere and would increase the amount of data that, in, that could be carried to an individual phone significantly. So the idea sort of sounds all well and good, but the question is whether or not it's going to work in practice. And the reality is we only know so far, at least publicly, what it's like in a controlled environment. And then when I say controlled environment, I mean within a building or, and within a room within a building, not even between floors of a building or between walls in a building. So I would say relatively controlled environment. Not as controlled as an anechoic chamber, but certainly controlled. So the way he chose to announce it is he gave approximately an hour-long demonstration at uh, Columbia uh, University. And it was, it was very interesting. So uh, anyway. Okay. So... The, just before we talk about that particular one, there was also a three-minute uh, video that was very highly, well, I think it was very slick. It was very nicely produced about how wonderful Artemis was and so on. And I always find it annoying when they play ads inside keynotes. And yes, that applies to Apple as well. It's like, I, I, okay, you made an ad and we're going to show it to you. I'm sure I'm going to see the ad on TV in a few weeks or a few days even. I don't really need to see it during a presentation, but sure, what the hell, you made an ad, I'm happy for you. But yeah, hey, so they play this ad during the Columbia demo as well as it's already been released as well on, on YouTube and so on. But in any case, uh, very, very slick, very high produced, and of course, very contentless in terms of exactly what how this thing works. Just a bunch of rah, 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 it's great. Demonstration video runs for just under an hour and it was targeted at an audience of people that were looking to become entrepreneurs and innovators. Then the first 14 and a half minutes are terribly boring. But you know what? If you value your sanity, feel free to skip it. If you don't, then feel free to listen. I listen so that you don't have to. I guess. Was it a pitch? Like, are they looking for people to franchise uh, this? No, it was uh, it the first 14 and a half minutes were just uh, like introductions, backgrounds, a bit about Steve's background. Oh, okay. And then Steve gets on and says, oh, yeah, and yeah, I'd like to thank this person and that person. And we're here. It's all about being an entrepreneur. And I'm an entrepreneur. And I've been doing this for years. And isn't it just great to be an entrepreneur? And oh, my God. It's like, you know, at some point, I'm assuming you're going to get to the exactly why we're here. And finally, of course, he did. But just I'm just saying, 14 and a half minutes, skip. Feel free to skip it. It, um, yeah, and actually, my whole, the flavor of the presentation reminds me a little bit of Enron, you know, a little bit of the where, you know, like we're the smartest guys in the room. So, so don't look at those books. We're the smartest guys in the room, you know, that it just it had that feel to it. 
You know, got a like great poker was, face here, John. I'm just, seriously, it's just I'm not saying that these guys are going to be like Enron, but it just it had that feeling about it. It's like, you know, it's very slick. Very well. The presentation itself really wasn't that slick. It's just the uh, fact that well, but they everything else that I've seen here looks it's very. The the presentation at Columbia, I thought on the whole was actually quite clumsy. But you know, this is from someone that, that's honestly what I want to see. I want Columbia. Well, yeah, but it's not from, that it from was, when you're, for a tech demo, right? Like I, I want to see the flaws. Yeah, but the problem is that the tech demos worked perfectly. Mm. The presentation itself was clumsy, and oh. you know, and honestly, that's not really a showstopper for me. Someone's presentation skills does not equal whether or not their product is any good or not. It just means they suck at presenting. So he sucks at presenting. Okay, that's fine. No big deal. You know, move along. But in any case, um, I just at one point in the video, he calls out the guy that they actually behind one of the cameras was actually the guy that made that three minute video, and he's like. He took a minute and a half or something to praise his prowess with Final Cut Pro. And I'm like, well, that is that really necessary? I mean, okay, sure. You've just padded it out one hour. You just add an extra, you know, one and a half minutes that you didn't really, was not relevant, but sure. Uh, there are a lot of pointless anecdotes. It was just very unfocused, you know, lots of rambling and a hell of a lot of vagueness. It's like, this thing is really amazing. And anyway, so that's so, a smell. Yeah, it's it had that sense to it. It was just right. not polished, not tight. It wasn't tight at all. So, so there was that. And and I mean, when that happens, it's either a there's just not much to say, and I'm and and now padding it out to an hour, or b he's just a bad presenter. And I honestly don't know which it is, but I'm going to lean towards it's actually probably a bit of both. So there was either not much to say or not much that they wanted to say, um, and he was not the best presenter in the world, but. In any case, some of the other content that he did show that's worth mentioning is he showed a bunch of slides about how mobile spectrum is running out due to the issues of penetrating buildings. And to be honest, that is actually kind of true, but there's ways around that. I mean, that's what Wi-Fi is. I mean, if you blanket a building inside with Wi-Fi, you don't have to have 3G reception. If you if you relieve the carriers from the quote-unquote burden of having to carry voice calls, then Wi-Fi is perfectly capable right. of carrying a FaceTime audio call. Well, uh, okay. Well, mostly. But you, you know, I mean, okay. Let's assume we're only not. <laughs> the reason we're not using it for this is is a different one, but it works fine. Yeah, I, I know FaceTime <laughs> audio for the purposes of most people talking would not. You would not notice the reliability of the connection over a standard cellular mobile phone conversation. You wouldn't. I mean, that you would get a similar, I would suspect, quantity of dropouts over FaceTime audio than you would get if you were just roaming around on a 3G network or 4G network or whatever. Yep. So from that point of view, yeah, why bother? If you're within range of Wi-Fi, give up on your 3G. Why do you care? Everything comes in LTE as packet data anyway. So what's the damn difference? So to say that, oh, we're running out of, you know, we're running out of some spectrum that'll penetrate buildings. So I mean, that only affects people that don't have Wi-Fi. How many buildings do you know now that don't have Wi-Fi in them? I mean, almost every almost every corporate office I have been to has Wi-Fi in, in it, you know, connected to the internet. So anyway, look, I find that it's sort of a, that is sort of like a disingenuous. It's like it's it's solving a problem that existed ten years ago that is no longer a problem. You know, I, that's what I think. Anyway. So that's okay. Apart from that, is there a, is there a crunch coming? Well, of course. If you keep adding more and more and more uh, users to a to a finite amount of space and a finite amount of spectrum, you're going to hit the wall at some point. 
You know, it's kind of like the phone number thing. Right? Is, Everyone's- is the, I'm sorry. Is, is the problem heightened? I mean, I know you and I don't live in super dense cities. Is 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 sure. it different if you're in New York, if you're in, in L.A.? Yeah, um, of course. Where where even, you know, you're going to start having tremendous overlap of Wi-Fi and, and interference and all that kind of stuff. Is that is that more what they're they're targeting? Uh, absolutely. And the, okay. the, and this is part of the this is part of the attraction of this product is it's supposed to perform very well in high concentrations because the signals don't apparently interfere with each other. However, that's that that's all well and good, but yeah, you know, and I guess we'll get into this a little bit more um when we get to it and that is the range of this thing and what it's suited for. So I guess my problem the the problem that I have with that concept though is that it's kind of like saying how with um I was going to say phone numbers ran out, right? Well, in Australia what we had is we originally had three digit area codes and we had six digit phone numbers. And when I was a kid, they upgraded that to two digit area codes and eight digit phone numbers. So by doing that, the extra digit gave, gives you a heck of a lot more combinations. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, of course, that um, the IPv4 versus IPv6, right? So, well, you've got you've got four. Uh, oh, geez, two fifty six um, bytes. I forget. I'm sorry. I'm I'm drawing a silly a silly blank, and that's four eight like, byte. You got so. four. Eight byte um, components to give you every address in the world, and even if okay. if you've got even if you've got, uh, yeah, you you go through a router, and then you've got um, subnets that are hidden behind the, those yeah. public facing IP addresses. You're still not going to run it anytime soon. Well, that's the theory, right? But you know, we're starting to we're reaching a point where we're going to hit that wall. We're going to have to go to IPv6. So everyone always thinks that with whatever technology that they're currently doing, they're not going to hit the wall. Oh, we'll never need more than blah. And then, of course, when a resource seems infinite, what do we humans do? We just keep on saying, oh, it's infinite. We'll just keep going, won't we? Let's make everything internet-connected. Sure, I want to have an internet-connected um, you know, light switch. <laughs> I want an internet-connected bloody iron, uh, internet-connected sewing machine. You know, I don't know. Insert some kind of stupid idea and connect to the internet. It just makes it all better. And we did a whole episode on that, so I'm going to refer to that. But you know what I mean? It's like it, it, whatever technology... If P-Cell is, is true and, and it works and it's some kind of miracle, I guarantee you that it will simply take you to the next wall. So, you know, him sort of saying we're about to hit the wall is kind of like saying, well, duh, obviously we're, we're going to hit the wall. Of course we, we are. We've been hitting this IPv4 six wall for like five years now. And I go to DigitalOcean, they still give me a free, free IP. I don't know. Well, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I get it. Like, we're going to hit the wall, but when's it going to happen? I don't see the construction yeah, pr- happening. Predicting me. when, predicting the exact moment when is, yeah. is the problem. Yeah, the whoever problem can is, do that makes a lot of money. Well, yeah. And, and the closer you get to the wall, you can predict it with more precision, kind of like an asteroid coming to hit the planet. Right. But, yeah, anyway. Um, wow, that took a negative turn briefly. Okay. <laughs> Back on topic. No. Uh, okay, so... The t- he talks about radio, um, how radio was considered to be reliable, and then in this generation, as in of, of, of people, this generation of people, what are we up to, Zed? I don't know. This generation of people, radio is not considered to be reliable anymore. And frankly, I don't really get it. I don't understand that statement. I mean, if he's talking about AM radio and in-building penetration, then... You know, AM radio had no problem getting into a concrete bunker for the most part, you know, generally speaking. AM radio would bend and penetrate all sorts of stuff. 
But yeah. what, why did we move away from AM? Because the quality wasn't good enough. We wanted more bandwidth to get a high quality signal. So what do we do? We go to FM. Okay, fine. But FM, you know, to use that bandwidth, you need to go higher in frequency. Fine, you go higher in frequency. Uh-oh, you don't get the range. Uh-oh, you don't get the building penetration. Oh, dear. You know, so I don't see that there's a connection between generations and how radio is considered reliable. The, the, the suggestion is that, that, that mobile phones were considered to be more reliable at one point and now they've become less reliable. That's bullshit. I'm sorry, but it's just completely wrong. I mean, honestly, I remember getting more dropouts 20 years ago on my mobile than I do than I get today. The coverage is better than it's ever been. So I really don't understand that statement. And I do live in a re- relatively high-density um, city, well, Brisbane. Oh, I mean, it's not as high-density as uh, Sydney or Melbourne or certainly not New York or, you know, or Tokyo. But yeah, even so, it's still high enough density. So I, don't, I just don't get that statement. It doesn't make any sense to me. So either it's a statement that he sort of offhandedly, says, offhandedly said as a, a sort of, so his attempt at showmanship or does he just not understand the issue? Or does he misunderstand history? I don't get it. Or did he have a few bad experiences in his specific location that had nothing to do with it? And it's just his impression. So I don't know what that was, but it is certainly just... It's, I could see it, that being a you know a product of, of cognitive bias, right? That we're just... Yes. We're using these things a lot. They're on our minds a lot. We're yeah. paying a lot for them in terms of the products themselves and the data plans and all that kind of thing. And 10 years ago, none of that was the case. So... Everything's more now, right? There's, there's, there probably are more absolute drops, but what the actual percentage is, yeah, yeah much that's less. probably much less. Yeah, absolutely. And it just comes back to the lack of polish in the presentation. Is if you're interjecting stuff like that, you know, that's just, I, no, I'm sorry, but that's just, it's just, it's stuck out at me as being completely wrong. And I don't, yeah, anyway. All right, so then he gives us a basic lesson about current cell structures, how handoffs work and so on, and then um, the layering of cells from macro to micro to pico to femto cells. So, yeah, that's the what we, I think we talked about this briefly before as well mm-hmm. on the next ubiquitous thing. So then he starts talking about backhaul, and he says fiber is expensive. Well, guess what? So is microwave. Microwave costs more to run. It takes more electricity. It's more prone to problems with weather. You know, and microwave links, you know, from from point to point, you know, in unlicensed bands. Well, there, there comes a, a point where, you know, if microwave beams start crossing, you can start sometimes get some strange behavior depending upon frequencies that they're running at. Yeah, you know, some very strange sort of effects if they're too close to each other, if they're not aimed accurately. Yeah, you know, there's also hazards with uh, with dealing with uh, installation and maintenance of these things. I'm sure we've it, discussed, but um, what's the what is the typical range for microwave? When would you, uh, my, when would that be the right choice? Well, if if you've got line of sight, then line of sight is fine. It's just a okay. matter of power. So you've got a link budget, and, and you've got to make sure that you have enough margin from one end to the other, such that when it rains really heavily, you still get a signal through because oh. microwave oh. is affected by rain. So the the problem that I've got with that is yes, it is more expensive to haul a fiber, but this is designed for high density areas. So mm-hmm. if you've got buildings, I guarantee you, it is going to be a better solution to run a fiber from the top of the building to the bottom through one of the access ducts than it's going to like cable to cable uh, cable right. ducts than it is to install. I mean, here's the next. Hey, you're not question. digging a trench out to to me here in the sticks. <laughs> yeah, it's like here's the next question. Okay, uh, if you're actually putting a microwave 
because it has to be on top of the building, right? You need to be as high as possible away from all obstructions. So, you know, you've got to put an antenna up on that building. You can't just put up a free antenna. You, you need to put up an antenna and register it. At least you do in this country. And I'm pretty sure America is no different. You have to register it. And you can't have 100 antennas that anyone just feels like putting up on top of any old building without, without there being some kind of coordination. So some building tops, you've got to license that. Where's the power coming from? Yeah, so it's usually a different set of billing. So if you own the whole building, that's one thing. But usually those utilities are owned by other, like the, the body corporate or whoever controls the building, the mm-hmm. owner of the building. And they'll lease you that and they'll give you a power bill. And I guarantee you the power bill for microwave is going to be a lot higher than fiber. And the other thing is, even if you do get the microwave antenna on the damn roof, that's great. But you still got to get comms from that down to a, a portal into the internet. What are you going to do, do that on? I guarantee you're going to do that on fiber. You're not going to do it on. You're not going to do it on coaxial. You're not going to do it on. You know, Cat Six. You're going to do it on fiber. Everyone does it on fiber these days. Fiber's cheap. Fiber's got to the point where it's as cheap as copper. So I, I find the whole concept that microwave is cheaper. It's predicated on the fact that you've got. You'd have to run a fiber run from point A to point B, and it's twenty kilometers. Yes, then microwave is cheaper. But in an urban area, I dispute that fiber is more expensive than microwave. So again, I don't know whether or not that's a lack of understanding or whether it's just a convenient truth for them. You can decide, you just put up there and you just put microwave and it's all magic radio and it all just happens. You know? And it's like, well, that's very dismissive. And it's not very, to me, it's not very reflective of the reality that, that, that fiber is a better way to go because microwave spectrum is also limited. Whereas fiber isn't. Fiber is your own party line. You can put as much data on that as it can handle and you will not interfere with anyone else. So fiber is always a better answer unless it's a long distance and there's no existing corridor, no existing conduits, yeah, and you've got to lay them all, at which point then fiber is more expensive. So that's one small subset and not the subset he's pitching the product at. Okay, so there's that. <clears throat> One of the other interesting things is there's one person in the audience that keeps on yelling out and interrupting. Always the same guy. And you know, you know, it's like I watched the wrong video, huh? You totally <laughs> watched the wrong the, one, man. Okay. This is this was rivet well, was it riveting? It Sounds was like it was it's worth okay. I'll watch it. Okay. People usually watch so, that video. A couple of time indexes if you're interested. Twenty five minutes, twenty seconds, twenty seven minutes, and thirty eight minutes. Uh there was actually another one um later on. Uh, I think um but I didn't write that one down. Apologies. Anyway, so some of the questions that he asked was, we do this, what you're proposing, we do this using Wi-Fi today. And then the next comment was, current technology can do this right now. And then the next comment was, this was this sort of technology was demonstrated at Stanford five years ago. Was he a plant? That's what I think. Like, it's exactly like, let's it's, address it's the objections. Like, this is just, yeah. I'm, it's, I'm bringing me back to like sales guides. Like, yeah, exactly. How to sell it's someone a car. Like, it sounded like it was a plant to me. It, it really did not sound genuine. In the end, if the person that was objecting is listening to the show, please uh, <laughs> contact me and let me know if I'm wrong because I'm, I'm happy to be wrong. But you know what? That's how it came across. It just it felt a little bit pained, a little bit manufactured. And he said, we'll cover it in the Q&A. We'll cover it in the Q&A. There was no Q&A. And if there was, maybe there was, but they didn't record it and they didn't publish it. I've read around. I could find no references to any Q and A after the Columbia session. So, so now, I don't want to. I don't want to belabor this. I mean, I know you have more to talk about, but but yeah. who who's the audience here? Like, I'm I'm looking at their site, and I go down to the bottom, and it says learn more about P cell, and there's four 
icons. The interested consumer, which is interesting, which is okay. Uh, carriers and independent ISPs, passionate talent, and math and science teachers. Um, do you know, I mean, this is not a consumer product, but it's kind of packaged like one. Like it feels like this, like they're trying to do an Apple keynote, right? But I can't go out and buy this. No. What, what I think like that, who are they talking to? Are they talking to you? Guys, I I mean, guys with your experience? Not. I honestly don't know. I mean, in the video, he says that he's trying to address people uh, that are of a technical background. Well, here's the problem. They didn't delve into too much of the technical detail. The stuff that, that was not already public knowledge, stuff that was not already well known, you know, they didn't delve into it. So if you've got a technical audience, you didn't even bring out a bloody spectrum analyzer. You know? So I I just want to um I get to the end of this and I'll sort of hear some objects. So I've got more about this demonstration. Look. Um the question basically was um what they presented could be achieved with Wi-Fi or a set of LTE local cells, and we would have had no idea. They never showed a close-up of the settings on any of the phones. So they had five, they had eight iPhones. <clears throat> All we would have needed to see was a close-up of the screen showing that Wi-Fi perhaps was off and what 3G or 4G it was attached to. So if it was going through Artemis, they may have had like a a custom cell ID, you know, like Artemis Base Station 1 or or something like that, where it would normally say Telstra Optus AT&T. It might have some kind of lingo or code, something to indicate. That it was actually because I mean, if they showed it up and it showed up with Rogers AT and T or whatever the hell it is these days or Sprint, you know, clearly I call BS, right? Mm-hmm. So all I did was show a bunch of phones from a distance, no close-ups, no just playing video as proof of something. Well, that's not proof as far as I'm concerned. It's like why don't you show that? It would have taken thirty seconds, and it would have dispelled all of that. They didn't do that. So anyway, next they pack the eight iPhones on top of each other and start video streaming. Uh, they, they pack them all up. Like as quickly as they bring them out, they pack them up. And then they start video streaming uh, to TVs. So they start going on about Netflix and House of Cards being in 4K and so on. And just as it runs for about a minute or so, they show, isn't that great? It's wonderful. You can't see it on here because it's not as high res, but geez, it's great. And then they shut it down and they go back to their presentation. Why so brief? Why not leave that running? And then talk. I mean, is there some issue with running it for a longer period? I don't get it. It's like you, you, you know, you've got their attention. Prove this, or at least demonstrate longer. I don't want to see a set of slides. I want to see this working for a longer period. I don't get it. Anyway, so then he starts talking about bandwidth for existing cellular versus P cell layouts. Yeah, again, he shows a bunch of like a bunch of MATLAB sim- simulations. You've ever played with MATLAB software before? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of people have. So um, played with, <laughs> never yeah, done anything yeah. productive, but played with. No, well, I, I played with it at, uh, at university, and I dabbled with it once at Nortel. But you know, I haven't played with it in, in a long time. But in any case, he starts talking about new mathematics. That was at forty-four minutes forty-five seconds. What new mathematics? I don't. You know, I'm not ha- sure how many branches of mathematics are invented every day of the week. But hmm, that's a bit odd. So uh, again, I sort of shook my head at that comment. Now, he was then talking about spectrum allocated to 900 megahertz cordless phones and how yeah, there's a segment in there that's, that's, that's free, uh, that's, that's public uh, usage. But the thing is that um, 
if you're going to cohabitate those areas with 900 megahertz phone, I wonder whether or not that's going to be causing problems for people with 900 megahertz cordless phones. So you can't just, I, you know, I think, I'm not sure if, if um, I'm not, I just not, why didn't he talk more about the details of what he could use, where it could be used, as opposed to, oh, there's a bunch of, you know, unlicensed spectrum. You could use it here. You could do that. So, well, actually, I think you're surprised that you can't because if when they specify that the band is free and unlicensed, they'll specify an operational mode for that band. And this is using some new modulation technology. The FCC in America and ACMA in Australia, they're going to look at that and say, well, hang on a minute. That's not this. That's not this. That's not this. We have no definition for what this is. We have to assess how much this is going to interfere with the other people that are freely using that segment before we're going to give you a license to operate there for free. You don't just rock up and, and transmit some crazy new modulation scheme in someone else's bandwidth. You just don't. It's not, you know, it doesn't matter if it's, oh, yeah, it's free. You can, you can use this bandwidth for whatever you want. Well, no, it's not. It's free under certain conditions. So another thing, it just, I, I, don't, understand, I don't think that that was, showed the depth of understanding. So then we go on to the software radios. He talks about how everything, this is all software radio. It's all software crunch. It's got an eight-core server, a couple of eight-core servers, and they're all you know, off-the-shelf components, and it's all running Linux, and it's all fully infinitely scalable, and it's a better solution than custom silicon. Tell you one thing, custom silicon doesn't crash. Um, that's my first <laughs> response, but okay. Um, so anyhow, uh, we... He also said the radios are all externally wall-mounted. That's great. We tried that at Nortel, and it didn't go well. We had RF, uh, the first editions of the Metrocells, they had um, RF front ends and radio frequency modules with the two generations, and those two different ones, uh, what would happen is people would uh, mount these things up along on side of uh, grain silos and because yeah, they were high and you're in the middle of Kansas. And what would happen is they'd get grain sucked into them and, and, and they would, you know, be faulty. And the next generation of Metrocell after I left, they went back to the RF amplifiers down in the base station and you just run, you know, low-loss coax up to an antenna because that can't go wrong. So I do find it a little bit concerning that, you know, they're saying, oh, you can put this anywhere. Well, yeah, you could put it anywhere, but should you? Because if you're putting all the radio amplifier, transmitter and everything in this one box, you better make damn sure that it's either hermetically sealed or it's not going to get damaged. Because I tell you what about antennas is that people put them up there and then they they start to not see them. And, they, and things will hit them, they'll get damaged. <sighs> so who's anyway. putting them up again? I don't know. That's another good question. That's my question. <laughs> who's doing all this work? So, exactly. All right. He then goes and says, this is only using one milliwatt of transmit power on the transceiver. Okay, that's incredibly low. And in fact, one milliwatt is a definition of zero dBm because yeah, it's dB relative to a milliwatt. So hence, that's zero dBm. So one milliwatt or zero dBm of, of transmit power is extremely small. And of course, it's meant to sound impressive and does sound impressive. But uh, and I'll address a little bit more about that in terms of range uh, further on. Now, I lost track of how often he said it's really cool stuff. It actually got to the point where it was annoying. He was saying it every minute or two, and it was just so frustrating. At the end, I'm like, yeah, can you please stop saying that it's really cool stuff? I don't, I don't need you to hear that. I don't need you to hear that. And I was trying to, I was trying to be you know, gracious. Like, I think to myself, what if it was Steve Jobs giving this presentation? You know, would I have given him a free pass and say it it's okay like Steve to have? Jobs wouldn't have given this presentation. 
No, I know, but because yeah, you know how Steve Jobs had certain phrases, you know, right? Yeah, that he would say like over and over, like like boom, boom, it just works, and you know that sort of stuff. But I thought about it. There's no way Steve Jobs would have said an expression like that that many times to the point at which it was grating. So anyway, uh, and I only hold Steve Jobs up is because he's widely considered to be, as CEOs go, as Steve Pellman is the CEO. Uh, of, of how you give a yeah, good presentation. Is the, is the, That's the only reason yep. that I, I bring him up as a gold standard is because he's generally considered by people around the world to be an excellent presenter. Or Best pitch man of the day. Exactly. Sure. Absolutely. So he's the model by lot to which many people are compared. So I don't think that's unfair criticism. All right. So finally, we talk about, he talks about um, Q4 2014. So in other words, end of this year, first, first large scale deployment. He had, they had a deal, but it fell through. Whoops. So he said the city is to be yet to be determined and I haven't set up a partner yet. So it sounds like there was some momentum and then for whatever reason, they uh, the other party dropped out. I wonder why they dropped out. I'd love to know why. Uh, and then he, he hints at the end, uh, 55 minutes and 50 seconds in. He says, P-cell technology can be applied to more than just mobile phone technology. There he says, there's a hint in the demo video. Did you see it? And that's all I want to say. So I kind of, you know, I don't actually know. There's a whole bunch of theories that I read about what, what he was hinting at. But honestly, they, they ranged from it can focus RF and fry your brain. It's a, it could be used as a weapon. I'm like, oh, my God, tinfoil hat people. And then you've got the other group of people, uh, the other food. prevailing. You can cook your food. Was, it's, we don't eat ovens anymore. Right. That's really what yeah. I want is just open air ovens. <laughs> That's snap your fingers and at your fingers suddenly it's your, your it's fingertips are cooking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's it in cold climates. You've got hand warmers now wherever you are. Um, uh, seriously, though. Yeah, really disruptive. Anyway, yeah, one of the other theories was that you could do remote powering of, of objects. So you could remotely power something like a, uh, a very small toy helicopter or something using this technology. And so you would, uh, and that would therefore mean you need no batteries. Right. That's what. Means. That's like the first thing I read was was people saying it's this isn't about communication; it's about wireless power. And I just thought, okay, Tesla, like, what's the? We've heard this before, and I mean, is that? Tes- yeah, Tesla tried it, and the truth is, you simply lose too much power. You just you lose too much radio energy. By the time it gets from one point to the other, you've got bugger all left because radio waves expand right. in a sphere. Now, you can bend them, you can coerce them, reflect them, and so on to try and focus them as much as you can. But honestly, you know, you still can't transfer a meaningful amount of energy from point A to point B. Is it measurable? Yes, but it's in the microvolts. It's not. You're just, and you're not, wasting so much. Yeah, I mean, a, a 1.5 volt battery, and some of these helicopters will run off a 1.5 volt battery, like a AAA, AA battery. You know, 1.5 volts transmitted from uh, using just a radio energy, you would need to start with a ridiculous amount of energy at the source to get that even a few, even 100 meters. So, I, 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 again, I call BS on that. But you know what? I don't really know what he was suggesting because no matter what I come up with, I shoot down with that doesn't make sense. So I don't get it, and well, I guess we'll see what he means. It'll be something cryptic and probably not as impressive as everyone else is thinking. So in any case, I didn't want to dwell on that because that's not about P-Cell. So there were two other demonstration videos that were just Mr. Perlman talking, and they were just replications of what they presented at Columbia. 
And there's one called the Visual uh, Visualization and Explanation of P-Cell Technologies. They showed a modified radios that took out error correction inherent in LTE, apparently. And, and during those, they turned off adaptation, which is the ability of the P-Cell technology to track the physical location of the receiver. In other words, the mobile phone or the tablet computer, tablet PC they were using, such that they were able to show the boundaries of the P-Cell. So if you go a little bit too high, a little bit too low, a little bit too far to the left or right or front or back, that uh, the radio signal died. So he was showing that it's a bubble in free space. Yeah, and, and that's and that's great. Okay, again, very cool demo. But you know that was using a modified radio. What else did they modify? Yeah, you know, was it just error correction? Was there another very good reason that it was modified? So I'm not sure I buy that one either. But in any case, so what would I what I would have loved to have seen? Okay, so here's my what what my wish list. If if he was to start this again, what would help? I think would be let's start off with a spectrum analyzer or an LCE network analyzer, something like that. You've got an audience of people that are technologically inclined. They're going to look at the, sc- the screen of these scopes and they're going to say, "Oh, okay, I can see. Here's my center frequency. Okay, yeah, here's my, um, uh, yeah, here's my center frequency and and here's the bandwidth and all of that. So I can see for myself, yes, indeed, you're saying it's 5 megahertz. Well, it is 5 megahertz or it is 10 megahertz. Yes, it's 10 megahertz. Or I can see the different frequencies in the room if it's different frequencies or if it's the same frequency, I can see the different transmitter power. Yeah, something technical, you know, not just, oh, yeah, trust me. You know, that would have been helpful because you've got, you're trying to pitch this to technical people. Why not? I mean, what, and the other question is, what frequency was it running at? Was it running at a very high frequency, which is less prone to reflections, or was it run at a lower frequency? I mean, LTE covers a wide range of possible frequencies. Close-ups of the iPhones, I mentioned that before. It would have been nice to have detailed what cell towers they are connected to, like just beyond the name. But unfortunately, to do that, you need to jailbreak an iPhone. And there's an app out there called uh, Signal 2 that allows you to do that on a jailbroken phone. It'll show you all the details of the cell tower location and all that really good stuff. But, you know, I think the problem at the time was just on the subject of, of jailbreaking iPhones, they were using 5Ss and 5Cs. And I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I think there might have been a technically a, a tethered jailbreak available at the time they would have been doing development and the time of the presentation. But, you know, again, if, once you jailbreak to illustrate that, then that could, you know, bring up the question of, well, if you've jailbroken to do that, have you messed with the baseband the modem firmware? Have you... Yeah, done some other dodgy stuff to make these non-standard iPhones. So it's a double-edged sword there, I suppose. But they could have at least shown the iPhones that they weren't connected over Wi-Fi. Yeah, because honestly, you could with with a a couple of Wi-Fi hotspots, you could easily fake that, no problem. So I, you know, anyway. And for what it's worth, I collected all my all the kids' iPads, my iPad, and my iPhone, and my wife's iPhone. I stacked them all on top of each other just for the hell of it, and I streamed. A bunch of videos from from my MacBook Air, which has got an iTunes library on it, and I've got uh, a Wi-Fi router on here, and it worked. You know, and it but was and it 4K, John? Okay, no, it wasn't 4K. Even though you're not, viewing it on a non-4K screen. Yeah, look, I realize it's not an exhaustive test, but it just I had to satisfy my own curiosity. Did you take a video of that? I hope you took a video of that. <sighs> Interestingly. I could not take a video of it oh, because you were using the it. devices I was using <laughs> to test. And ah. look, it's, okay, so I was not setting into de- out to debunk everything, but I'm simply pointing out that honestly, and I, okay, I find I've got a dual band end router, and um, so yeah, I've got two bands to play with. So I got 5.8, and I got 2.4 gigahertz in the router. You know, it's a dual antenna router, so it's got the the diversity and everything. And yeah, it's, it's not the latest AC router, but you know what? Yeah. It's still a, it's We've still a quite one. a decent yeah. router. But you know, what I'm saying is that. 
if I could do something like that with no effort, then you know, if with 1080p devices all stacked on top of top of each other, a couple of Wi-Fi hotspots, and it should theoretically should work. So you know what? It just I feel like most magicians would work harder at showing the audience. Look, the box is totally empty, right? Tap tap, and then there's a bunny rabbit in it. You know, even a magician would take more time showing you. Look, this isn't a trick, and and yet they didn't. Yeah. So I I, I don't know. Anyway, uh, I think I've ranted on enough about those presentations. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about Typeform. Sure, John. Um, so forms are a key component of asking questions online. And up until now, they've meant a lot of work to design, configure, and administer. And after all of that, the results have usually been pretty unflattering. Um, there are form builders out there that take care of some of the problems. They make it easier to get something basic up, but creating something great with them is still hard. What we need is a tool that's easy to use, feature-rich, and that looks and works great on any device. And that's where Typeform comes in. Typeforms are beautifully designed, and they're built to have cross-platform compatibility, well, not baked in, but designed in from the beginning. Um, it's not responsive design. Uh, John, I know you've, you've been working on your site, so you, you get this, right? You get the yeah. kind of the debate between responsive design and, and making custom stuff for each platform. Absolutely. Um, and, and the idea here is, is really that, that they are serving a different code base to every type of device and making decisions about what needs to appear on the screen to really optimize that individual experience. So um, things that you might be able to do when you're on a desktop, like, like keyboard input, uh, you know, mousing around, you know, the, you know, you have no hover state ever on, on mobile and, you know, just, just shrinking something doesn't, doesn't address that change in behavior. So the, the point is they've really addressed these issues from the beginning and, and, and it is, it is that whole, you know, design is how it works and, and they're focused on making these things work. And it's actually it's it's really easy to use and put together. I've been using them to make a bunch of little surveys, kind of kind of fun stuff. I've just been putting out on Twitter, and uh, like you mentioned earlier, you did it for the the pragmatic survey. And it's just really quick to go right through and build stuff. And it doesn't, I don't know, it just doesn't feel super heavy. Um, uh, it's it's frictionless enough that I'm able to go through and and it you know it's clean and fast. So so I'm not it doesn't make me hate having to work with it, which is which is good. It's nice to be enjoyable. Um, the whole point with the, with the experience is that it's always about asking and answering one question at a time so that everything's linear. Uh, you're not jumping around. There's n- really not a situation where you should ever be forced to go back and change anything or worry about what's coming up ahead. And you don't have that. And, you know, thinking about getting a user to go all the way through a process, uh, you can you can one make sure people know how much is coming and, and you know either with some sort of a an indicator or you know or, you know progress bar, but by not showing this long form ahead of time and by kind of pushing people through step by step, you're avoiding that dropout and you can see it in the results. You actually, will, you know, it's statistically significant that this approach really works better. the 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 big thing is, is it really is about championing championing good experience and design the point is to create a space where users feel comfortable they don't feel like they're getting sold they don't feel like they're being 
forced to do things they don't want to do and then makes them feel safe. And that means they're more likely to answer and they're more likely to be honest. And people are using it for a lot of different things. It's really not just for business. Um, I mean, you're doing it for things like customer feedback and surveys, but also uh, contests, landing pages, uh, event organization. It's, it's really designed to let people, you know, use their imagination. Actually, at Typeform, they are using Typeforms to run their weekly stand-up meetings. I was talking about it with Sam uh, the other day. We were, we were on a call, and he was, he was explaining that, you know, the uh, I think on Fridays, they, they all get together and they do a little like mini keynote presentation uh, meeting using using this. So it's it's it blends it blends a bunch of ideas. Um, anyways, they're the only form builder that lets you get unlimited responses for free. So you're not locked in you as many questions as you want, as many answers as you get. You're you're unlimited. Uh, the whole point is to let you ask awesomely. And for a limited time, they're offering a three month free trial of their new Typeform Pro service. So if you want to check it out, uh, see what you can do, you should go to www.typeform.com slash Fiat Lux. And uh, when you end up there, you're going to see a like this huge variety. There's there's probably 100 different Typeforms that have been built and get a feel for what you're able to do, what this enables. And if you like what you see and you decide to sign up, use the coupon code FIATLUX. You'll get free three months. And uh, yeah, that's uh, I, I think you should do it. You should really check it out. It's uh, It's been good working with them. And the more I've got to experience actually using it, uh, recognizing that it, it really is more of a really is a tool built for asking and answering questions. It's not a survey builder. Um, it, it's a subtle thing, but it makes a difference. So uh, thanks to Typeform for sponsoring the show and for making it easier for people to get to know each other better. And uh, it's awesome. That's it, John. Thank you, Ben, and thank you, Typeform. And uh, again, just to reiterate, yeah, I'll, I'll check them out, I would. And uh, we'll move on to an article about PCEL written by a gentleman by the name of Im- Imran Akbar. And it was linked to by Marco Arment. And that's how I first came across this, and I started getting uh, hammered by listeners at that point to uh, to cover it. <laughs> I just want to quickly talk about Imran's article. I don't want to spend too much time on it, though. So there's a few things he says in there that sort of grate a little bit. So I'll start with um, – I'm going to read a, a quote from his article. Interference cancellation allows you to use low, lower frequency radio waves with better propagation characteristics, i.e. longer range. Until now, governments have had to limit the power output of radio antennas so as to not cause undue interference to other users of the spectrum, especially when you're using a frequency that can travel very far, in brackets, amateur radio, AM, and TV white space frequencies, etc. Now, that shows a sort of a lack of knowledge of exactly why governments restrict what they restrict. So interference cancellation has absolutely nothing to do with the frequency of the radio signal. It has everything to do with the bandwidth of the signals. So if I want to transmit data at a, at, at a bit rate, at a, whatever bit rate that might be, I might need a 10 megahertz channel to do that. So if I need 10 megahertz of, of bandwidth to transfer all the data at the bit rate that I want, if I'm going to start at 15 megahertz as my lower frequency, then I'm going to need all the way up to 25 megahertz to cover that 10 megahertz of spectrum. Now, if you, you know, knowing that the you know, wavelength, the, the formula is V equals F lambda for a wave, you, you can appreciate that building an antenna that covers, so that simultaneously transmits those signals at approximately the same gain 
over that period, over that bandwidth, and you'd probably do it with a log periodic. But irrespective, you know, you could build an antenna like that, but it's going to be extremely expensive, difficult to build, and it's not going to be very efficient. So the lower frequencies are usually reserved for narrow band signals, okay, and, they, and, and signals typically that require propagative um, characteristics like AM radio. So clearly, you know, he's not aware of AM radio transmitters or is, is, does not understand the reason that they're there. So they're from 512 kilohertz to 1800 kilohertz, and they transmitted hundreds of kilowatts, and yet they don't affect mobile phones that are within 100 meters of the towers. So it's got nothing to, the power has got nothing to do with it at all. Anyway, so another quote, which in turn means that you can put them, meaning the Artemis units, um, within line of sight of each other using microwave backhaul as opposed to fiber in brackets, which is faster set up. Now, I already sort of had a go at this from the presentation uh, section. And honestly, microwave around big cities, they're full of skyscrapers. You know, tall buildings, and you know what? It's congested as hell. Yeah, you know, some of the some of the microwave bands do actually have licensing. They're not all free, and the ones that are free are getting so very congested. So it's going to reach a point where they're going to have to be regulated because there's just too much interference going on. And the other problem that you've got is that in many cases you can't get a line of sight between the transmitters and receivers. Even if you are on the top of a tall building, it may not be the tallest building. And there's another problem. Sometimes you know buildings aren't tall enough, and, and trees grow. You know, so if a tree grows too tall, it can kill your microwave signal. You think, oh, I'm right, but no, a tree grows and whoops, now you can't anymore. Yeah, or buildings, which, you know, I was going to say buildings grow. They don't if you water them, actually, they just stay the same size. But, you know, yeah, people put up new buildings, right? The buildings are higher and taller and yeah, eventually buildings go up. Then what are you going to do? You're going to make your building taller? Well, that's a little bit harder. So you're going to have to put up a tower on top of your building. Oh, okay, that's going to require a special permit. You're going to get that. What about, you know, a- aviation permits and stuff? It's like you just can't – yeah, I find microwave to be a short-term solution. Ultimately, you should be running fiber. So honestly, I don't get the whole microwave point-to-point links are so wonderful. Well, not really. I think they suck. I think that they're a short-term Band-Aid. Anyway, next quote. Does it require full and perfect channel state information to be known? At least at the tra- At least at the transmitter. But even if it's not perfect, there are statistical techniques to deal with it. Really, there's statistical techniques. Well, if you're trying to triangulate position, accuracy of your source is incredibly important, especially if you're doing this to a one centimeter by one centimeter bubble, which is what Artemis claim that this is capable of. So I don't know any statistical technique that allows you to fudge your accuracy if your source transmitter is a meter to the left or the right. It means your end result is going to be at least a meter to the left or the right. Yeah, you just won't know. So statistically, it might be transmitting the bubble near the antenna. Well, that's not going to work if it's a one centimeter by one centimeter bubble. So I don't know. I don't. That doesn't. I don't get that either. So anyway, this is this the this idea of this one centimeter bubble. I think this is where like it enters the realm of magic for me. And I don't know. Sure. Maybe for people listening, yep. it, it it seems like that like we are reaching across space. It's like spooky action at a distance, right? Like. How is this happening? Uh, and I don't know if that's even worth going into, but it just, I don't, I, well, I, I don't even have a that. model for how that would work in my brain. Okay. Well, I'll try and help you with that model. Uh, that's the next thing I want to talk okay. about. So, okay. Great. Okay. Okay. So 
the idea that he was proposing is that statistical techniques will make up for it. My point is, no, I don't think that will that they will. I don't think that's possible. It'll you simply will be unable to lock onto the device, and it'll default back to a non-Artemis three G, four G, whatever mode. It'll simply say, "Oop, I'm trying to connect at high speed. Here's my position information. Here's my channel state information. All the transmitters, I'll crunch numbers, will come back, and they'll say, here's your little P-cell, and the radio will simply be out of alignment because the radio's in the wrong position. So it's like, oh, well, there's the bubble transmitting three centimeters to the right of the antenna, which means it receives nothing. Uh, oh, okay, well, I'm not receiving your signal. It's supposed to be wonderful. Well, what do I do? So you know, saying that statistics makes up for it, come on. No, it doesn't. Anyway, so look, you know what? Honestly, um, I'm going to leave my criticism on that article right there. And I want that to be very short because, frankly, the guy's trying to interpret what he thinks Artemis is doing. Okay, He's not an authority on the subject necessarily. A- again, the only people that are are from Artemis. And they're not going to talk about it publicly. This is all proprietary stuff. So we can only guess. And he's really only going based on the information that he's got available to him. And I'll be honest, he's had a pretty damn good stab at it. His understanding of it seems to be relatively okay. The article, if nothing else, was a, the best link repository I found on the subject. So he had like probably 50 links in his article to a whole bunch of different things, everything from you know white papers and, and uh, stuff about uh, the, the way that they deal with interference, uh, atmospheric interference and astronomy, you know, stuff like that, other related fields where they're doing interference calculation using, using pre-coding techniques, all this stuff. You know, honestly, he's to be commended, if nothing else, for pulling together all those references. So it was an invaluable resource when I was doing the prep for the show. So honestly, despite those four or five criticisms that I just leveled at him, I still think well done, um, you know, nicely put together, even though I disagree with some parts of it. Okay, so <sighs> let's get into the what. And before we start about basics of radio signals and make sure that we cover that ground, I want to talk a little bit about information theory and a bit more about some of the claims. So they claim P-Cell will work with any existing LTE handset. I'm not convinced by that, and I'll say why later. Claim number two is the technology creates a one-centimeter-one-centimeter radio bubble around the target device's antenna. So one centimeter is really not much. One centimeter, uh, 10 millimeters or whatever, so uh, one inch is 25.4. Uh, millimeters so you know one centimeter is about what quarter of an inch just over quarter of an inch something like that third of an inch it's really not a very big Mm -hmm. bubble at all it's very very tight so it's an interesting claim to make so in terms of information theory during the 1920s uh all the way through the 1950s guy called claude shannon and another one called ralph hartley developed what's become known as information theory and the quote-unquote famous Shannon's theorem or limit, Shannon's limit, is described by the equation capacity is equal to bandwidth times the logarithm of one plus the signal-to-noise ratio. And that ratio is obviously linearly expressed not as dB since dB is already logarithmic. So what it means is that... Okay, what does it mean? The bandwidth restricts how much data you can send as well as the noise. You reduce the noise, same amount of bandwidth, you can carry more data. Increase the bandwidth, same amount of noise, you can carry more data. Essentially, you get nothing for nothing. There's no magical way of actually 
changing those facts. So a couple of comments I've seen in the press about this is they've sidestepped Shannon's theorem. Well, no, actually, you can't sidestep it because it has been proven over and over and over again. Okay, there is this is information theory, all right? And honestly, no. What this is doing isn't really sidestepping Shannon's limit at all. And I guess the problem that I that I have with it is that it's it presupposes that uh, that noise is less of an issue than it really is in the real world. And again, in a controlled environment, maybe that's true. But in an uncontrolled environment with hundreds or thousands of users, I have my doubts. I think the noise will kill it. They say it uses noise to its advantage. Well, well, yeah. But if the noise is information, it ceases to be noise. And hence, Shannon's theorem and Shannon's limit should still apply. So I don't get that. In any case, that's sort of a gray area, so we won't dwell on that too much. Um, the biggest difficulty I see with P-cell has to be the accuracy of the transmitter location. They really need to be exact to be that precise. If you're trying to project a signal to a one centimeter square bubble in space, in three-dimensional space, not just X or Y, but in the Z plane as well, in three-dimensional space, I mean, honestly, that is going to be incredibly accurate. The GPSs in phones are not even that accurate. Well, and they're marketing this as if what they refer to it, I think, is what serendipitous. That's what I just read. That you could just put them wherever. Yeah, but the thing is, if you put them wherever, you're still going to have to tell the system where it's physically located in space. So yeah, and you can do that using GPS satellites for yeah. You know, so what you can do is uh, one of the techniques that they do to increase uh, GPS. Um, accuracy is they'll put a transmitter or sorry gps receiver on the top of a a hill that has a clear line of sight to the horizon so it's picking always picking up five six seven Mm -hmm. gps satellites and in there they'll have a very large number of gps receivers that correlate their signals to give you a highly accurate position down to the centimeter or the millimeter or whatever the blurring Mm-hmm. level that the you know US military I don't know if they've taken that off or not but I know for the longest time they were blurring the, the figures for it's civilian. a lot less than it used to be yeah yeah so I think that they may have taken that off but in any case the point is that highly accurate so then what happens is they will then broadcast and say hey by the way uh, I'm an accurate value so you can go to that tower and what it'll do is it'll say definitely for sure you are within this this maximum range of this exact okay. location so then it can take that information and then using less satellites, lock in its own location more accurately and more quickly than if it had to do it without it, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So they would have to, when you, whenever you, I mean, I think the expression serendipitous deployment means that you don't have to apply an application for the top of a building and have all these permits. You know, it's low power like Wi-Fi. You just put it wherever you like. But the difference is you're going to have to tell it exactly where it is in space. It has to know. I mean, how else can you triangulate if you don't know? So that's the, that's the first part of this. It has to be precise. I just, I do not understand how it's possible to triangulate a position without knowing that information. Now, if I've misunderstood that and it doesn't need to triangulate and it's getting its position through some other method that I'm not aware of, you know, hey, I'll, you know, I'll take a hit on that. But I'm, judging by the accuracy of that one centimeter square bubble, I'm sorry, but position is everything. So the other issue um, 
transmission power is the next issue. Um, actually, I'll get to that a little bit further down. So and if it is triangulating, you're going to need at least three transmitters. Obviously, the more the merrier, but two won't cut it. One certainly won't cut it. You'll need to have more than one because in order to lo- locate a pos- position uh, in space, you need to have a minimum of three antennas because if you have two antennas and you take a reading from each of them, pointing at one in one, uh, yeah, and they're all, uh, you can sweep a, for a transmitter, but if the antennas are fixed and you're taking a reading of signal signal strength and you know, approximate direction, then it'll tell you if it'll give you two images, either the one in front of you or the one behind you. So it's sort of hard for me to describe this on audio, and I apologize. It's hard. It's easier if I could draw it. But essentially, if you've got two fixed antennas and you're trying to trace the location of an actual radio transmitter that's out there and you're receiving information from it, the, the two of them will simply tell you, okay, the signal could be in this position directly in front of the two antennas or the right. same distance directly behind the antennas. I can't tell the direction. Now, if you're using phased arrays and you're doing beam steering and you know, you're, you're able to move the radio signal without physically moving the antenna, which you know, it sounds like they may well be doing, then maybe you can get away with two. But there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that if you want to get a decent measurement of height above sea level, you need a third transmitter. And in the, you need all three dimensions. Now, he said in the, in the demonstration videos, I think he said that there were three or there were several. So if, if there were two, he would have said two or a couple. But he said, I think I'm pretty sure he said several. So there's at least three. Maybe there's four. But you're going to need more than one. And that's just a reality. Mind you, those three or four could handle 100 users. Okay. So, you know, fine. But it's not like a radio tower technology where you would just put up one antenna and that cell or sector would be covered. So that's the first thing to be aware of, I guess, there. So obviously, the more P-Ways you have, the better positional accuracy and the more power you can focus on that location. All of the transmitter powers being additive if they coalesce on that one point. At least that's the theory. So the bottom line, though, is no matter how I turn this over in my head, P-Waves in their current form can really only augment cellular towers, but they can't replace them because ultimately you still need to have an initial connection that has none of that, that, that has, it's like you, you need something to generate that connection or you need something that can go beyond where you can't, don't have more than three radios, three Artemis points to be accurate enough. I mean, what if you're within range of two of the Artemis base stations, but not the third? What do you do then? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going to have, you need, you need a cell tower to fall back on. So this, I see this as being an augmentation of the cellular towers. And frankly, there's nothing specific in there that said, look, this is going to replace the cell towers. I think what it was more about is, look, you know what? We can layer this on top of existing cell frequencies and it works on top of LTE technology. They didn't say that the existing cell towers would be thrown away, not specifically. And frankly, I don't think they could be. All right. So we've got to cover all of the basics of radio. Then we're going to start talking about antennas. I'll try and keep this brief because we're already going to run long as it is. Radio signals travel as sine waves. Okay? Pretty straightforward. We modulate those waves in different ways to carry information. First analog and now digital. And when I say modulate, I mean you vary the amplitude of the signal or you can vary the frequency of the signal. So an FM signal, frequency modulated, AM signal, amplitude modulated. 
or you know, of course, there's also phase shift, uh, phase shifting. So you've got phase shift uh, keying, for example, phase shift modulation, and there's a whole raft of different ways of doing it. But essentially, you have a carrier frequency that carries the radio wave, and it gets modulated with the data. And on the other end, the receiver strips it off, so it strips off that that and gets back to what they call the baseband data. So essentially, you have two locations, A and B. A, I'm transmitting, B, I'm receiving, and they're transmitting through some medium that we'll call C. So for information to be transferred, you need A, you need enough power at the transmitter to reach B. B needs to be sensitive enough as a receiver to hear what A is transmitting. And C, there cannot be too much noise in that medium, in that medium C between them. So that's the equation. And when we have a, a communication link, we call that a link budget. So we say how much power of the transmitter, how much um, gain have I got at my receiver, what's the sensitivity of my receiver, how much noise have I got on the channel. Okay. Right. So simple enough. Usually all expressed in dB or dBm. Assume that the world is radio quiet. There is no noise at all. There's no signals other than just your radio signal. Assume that for a second. Okay, funny thing, still get noise. So the problem is that silicon actually creates noise. There's, there's actual, because you know, no, no solid material is completely solid. All of the, all the electrons, the atoms, they're all vibrating until you get down to absolute zero and all molecular motion stops, and that creates noise. So there is no such thing as a noiseless receiver. And one of the things that they do on on uh, radio telescopes is they cool their, trend, their, their receivers with uh, liquid nitrogen to drop the temperature hmm. to reduce that noise, and that makes the receivers more sensitive. So you can only do so much to get rid of that noise, and the sensitivity of a receiver is normally defined as uh, the minimum input signal required to produce a specific signal-to-noise ratio at the output port of the receiver, or input port, depending on how you want to think about it, and it's the mean noise power at the input port of the receiver times by that's the required signal noise ratio. And that's, God, that's a mouthful, isn't it? But the problem is I don't know how else to describe it. So some receivers have better sensitivity than others. So I thought what might be fun, fun, interesting, is to look at an iPhone and, and, and try and figure out what the sensitivity is on, on an iPhone. And you'd be surprised how hard it is to find that. The only one I could find that had this was a Nantec. And yeah, yeah, I I know. Yeah, I love a Nantec. It's a great site. I drool and I go to that site half the time. Anyway, um, iPhone 4. They had a test done around the Antanagate time, of course, not surprising, where they dig right down into the detail. It was reported as having a sensitivity, maximum, best sensitivity of negative 113 dBm. So 113 dBm. Negative. So that's about what I'd expect. You know, I mean, in uh, telemetry, I've had a couple that'll go down to minus 117, but then again, they're narrow band. They're not wide band. Okay. So I struggled to find the chip specifications for the latest iPhones. That's the best number that I could find. And believe me, I looked, but I just couldn't find them. I'm sure they're out there. I'm sure that if I was buying 10,000 units, I could get a data sheet. If I was a serious company like Nortel, you'd simply go to the manufacturer and say, hey, I work for Nortel. I'm in the RF design division. Can you please give me the specs on this chip? And then the next day, you would have a 
uh, you know, something in the mail from them, like a, a thick paper, a thick wad of paper that tells you everything you ever wanted to know and ever didn't want to know about their chip. Alas, I am not in that position anymore. And it wasn't publicly available. So that's the best I got. Anyway, so we're going to give this the best possible chance. We're going to run a 700 megahertz. Assume that there's no other loss, just free space loss. So if we run that through the calculation for free space loss, again, there's a link in Wikipedia for that, for free space loss calculations, we get 15.2 kilometers, which is 9.5 miles. So at at zero dBm transmit power, assuming that we're trying to reach 113 dBm receiver, we get a maximum range of nine and a half miles. That actually sounds like a lot. And it actually is a reasonable distance, but that's actually nowhere near the distance that an actual cell tower can cover. And remember, this is an ideal world scenario. Free space loss only. There's interference, there's there's transmit loss, there's received loss. It's all very, it's a much bigger equation. This, this is just assuming perfect mm-hmm. conditions and that there's no multipath, there's no fading, none of that. So, yeah, okay, not good. And it's also assuming there's no intersymbol interference, there's no co-channel interference, so your radio signal is the only radio signal in the world. Remember, there's no others. So again, I find it highly, it's obvious that the power on this, these units, they're not designed for you know, long distances. Now, maybe they're working on you know, one. Maybe they're working on a 10-watt model or a 20-watt model. I don't know. But I mean, if you go to those sorts of power ranges, they probably won't work in free frequency bands and, and so on because of power restrictions. But in any case, they didn't announce that, so I can only go on what they've announced. Whether they're producing a high-power version, I don't know. But in their current form, it just further cements my assertion that this can only ever be an augmentation of a cell tower system. It can never be a replacement. All right, so let's talk a little bit about antennas. So radio waves are transmitted in all directions. All right, so it's not a perfect bubble sphere, however you want to think about it. An expanding sphere is the best way because radio waves don't start at a single point. They're transmitted through a resonant device that we call an antenna. So you apply them to a conductive material and what happens is they resonate at certain frequencies and that then propagates the signal through an electromagnetic wave. Now, that'll travel in whatever directions that the antenna design permits. And most of it is uh, predominantly omnidirectional, as in in all directions. But there'll be points in the radiation pattern of the antenna that have higher gain and points that have less gain. So it's possible to actually add elements in front and behind of, of driven elements to create a Yagi. And these Yagi antennas will actually guide the signal towards the front. So you have maximum gain at the front, and they call that the frontal lobe of the Yagi. So the frontal lobe will have the maximum amount of gain. Anyway, irrespective of that, there's two kind of categories of antennas, passive antennas and active antennas. Passive antennas, they can be omnidirectional. They can be directional, like I said, like a Yagi or a log periodic, or they can be omnidirectional like a vertical antenna. But passive antennas receive raw radio energy, and through resonance alone, they amplify the signal as it was picked up, and the receiver simply amplifies it further and strips out the to the base, strips down to the baseband and, and so on. So that's passive. Active antennas use silicon, usually FETs, And what they do is they modify the characteristics of the antenna to keep it in tune across a wide range of frequencies. And the performance or resonant frequency of the antenna can be adjusted dynamically. And I say that like in quotes, in a manner of speaking. It's a bit of a simplification, but just trust me. It affects the loading of the antenna and blah, 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 blah. 
I don't want to go into too much detail as to how active antennas work, but typically you only use them in compact situations. Like at lower frequencies, you know, you might well, you might have to have, according to vehicles that land, but you might have to have an antenna that's 20 meters long. Guess what? You've only got one foot, okay? Well, you can probably use an active antenna or a heavily loaded antenna, but these days active antennas are becoming more common for interior, inside a house and and so on. However, active antennas are also used in phased arrays, and that's the next thing that I want to talk about. So having a single antenna for transmitting and receiving is the old-fashioned way. One of the new ideas that was floated a while ago was to actually have a multiple, much smaller antennas, but lots of them. And each of those could be an active antenna. And what you could do is you could then dynamically phase them together in such a way that you would take a little bit of the radio from this one, a little bit from this one, a little bit from that one, and you could add them all together to create much more radio energy. So that idea uh, of the idea of phased array, of course, you can get, you know, there's different ways of splicing it together. They've they've, got time or frequency domain uh, mixing. However, the, the point is that it's actually then possible to electronically, in quotes, steer the direction the antenna hears in. So with a Yagi, for example, it's a passive antenna and its main frontal lobe is oddly at the front. But imagine if you want to steer that, you've got to physically turn the antenna. You know, and I had one of those. I had an uh, ant- antenna rotator back when I was in uh, amateur radio regularly, you know, and, and I could turn the beam around and point the, point the Yagi wherever I wanted to talk, get the maximum amount of gain. But with, a, with phased arrays, it's actually possible to, dyn- to steer them electronically. So you're not really steering the antenna physically is not moving, but by changing the phase of the different antennas in the grid, you're able to steer that maximum gain point a certain number of degrees to the left or right of center. So at this point in time, it sounds a little bit crazy, but it does work. Um, so the idea is that you can use this technology um, for, for like in for spread spectrum, wide, wideband signals like spread spectrum, uh, frequency domain phase shifting is preferred because of noise variations over a wide bandwidth. Um, get, they get introduced if you use time-based uh, uh, time domain stuff. That's going to have a greater impact on wideband over narrowband. So we, we'll, they go with uh, frequency domain phase shifting for that. But anyway, this type of steering of radio antennas is sometimes referred to as beam forming. The idea is you can steer the beam, form the beam specifically in one path. So rather than it being fixed like in a traditional uh, three-sector cell where they'll get antennas that are designed to only transmit over about 120 degrees and there'll be three 120-degree um, sector antennas and they'll all be sort of backed up against each other so that they cover the full 360 degrees around them. So you'll have three sectors. You know, you can also go have six-sector cells and you can keep dividing it and dividing it and dividing it. But the point is that those antennas aren't steerable. They're always looking at the same 120 degrees. But with a phased antenna, you can say, well, I can actually set like an upper group or a middle group or a lower group, and the lower group's going to look at this part, and the upper group's going to look at this part, and the middle part's going to look at this part of that 120 degrees. So you can steer the different frequencies in different directions. And you would say, well, why would you want to do that? And the answer is to follow the people that are on the phone. So that's beamforming. Okay, so that's that's the radio component. Now, let's talk about multiple access methods. 
So ultimately, the big problem when you've got um, mobile devices is you've got a lot of people who want to talk at once. So how do you do that? With analog mobile phones, it was what they called frequency division multiple access. They didn't call it that at the time. They retrospectively called it that. Back then, it was just called a channel. You got a channel? All right. I'm on channel one, on channel two, on channel three, like a CB radio, a UHF CB radio or whatever. You know, you have a channel, you can talk. That's it. You got a up, up, up like a duplex connection. You'll have a, an uplink and a downlink frequency. But they'll be unique and you got them. Whether you're speaking or not, they are yours. You own them. Time division, multiple access, TDMA. Each phone had a time slot. So pick a frequency, any frequency you like, and cut that up in time. So you take the signal that used to be analog. I'm now going to turn that, make it digital. And I'm going to compress that down to, let's say, uh, 8 kilohertz with a vocoder, voice coder. And uh, so you got your vocoder data and you're going to split that up. And you say, okay, I'm going to fit four of you conversations on this frequency and I'm just going to split them up in time. So you get the first quarter of a second, you over there get the second quarter of a second, you over there get the third and you over there get the fourth. So you can fit four people, four conversations, compressed digital uh, audio on the one frequency. Fantastic. I've just quadrupled my, uh, the density that I've got on my, my system for the same frequency allocation. That's what I want. Better multiple access methods, more efficient. So then they bring in frequency hopping spread spectrum. And that's what uh, GSM uses. And that's kind of a combination of FDMA and TDMA, whereby there's a group of frequencies, usually all adjacent to each other, and the signal hops between them pseudo-randomly. The idea is that if there's any interference in any one frequency, it won't wipe out the entire channel. It'll only wipe out one very brief component of one of the time slots on one of the frequencies. So that allows you to carry on the conversation. It's designed to combat narrowband interference. It's actually you know, relatively effective, but at the same time, it's... I guess I worked in CDMA for too long, but in CDMA, we said, oh, that's, that's, that's pretend spread spectrum, you know. Real spread spectrum CDMA, that's, that's direct sequence spread spectrum. In which case, instead of having a narrow frequency and hopping it around all over the place, what you do is you actually have the entire baseband spread over a massive amount of bandwidth, like 5 megahertz, 10 megahertz, 20 megahertz, a huge amount of bandwidth. Well, I say huge. It is a, in relative terms. But if you consider a narrowband signal is like 25 kilohertz, when I say, oh, yeah, the, the CDMA channel is like 10 megahertz, it's like, oh, okay, that's a lot. Okay, so that's where things sort of get a little bit more complicated. So normally a radio signal is transmitted in the narrowband with a high amount of power to give the signal the best chance of getting through. However, that's easily jammable. So I can jam that well, either intentionally or accidentally. But by taking the baseband and applying a series of codes to it, it spreads the signal across a wider frequency range. You transmit the whole lot. So the idea is that you use the same total amount of power, but it's spread over a much larger area of spectrum. But direct sequence spread spectrum also comes with a very cool idea, a signal correlation. By encoding your data, the data you've got in your baseband with a unique code, and, and in CDMA, one of the codes they use is a Walsh code. It's possible to actually transmit all of the user's data on the sector or the cell, depending on how you configure it, on the same frequency. And yet you're still able to extract this, the conversation at the destination, at your receiver. All you do is you correlate it with the Walsh code that's assigned to that user. 
So if you correlate the noise, what looks like noise in your spread spectrum channel with Walsh code 5, let's say, then you will pick out any data that is going to the user that's been allocated and encoded with channel 5, with code 5. I shouldn't call it channel, code 5. And if you tune in on on code number 6, maybe there's no active conversation on there. So the noise is just noise. There is no actual phone call. And that's kind of cool because it means that you can actually have all the signals layered all on top of each other and all mixed together. And yet you can still pull them out by correlating the signal. Now that's really, really cool. However, it also has issues with power control and why it does is complicated. So I don't want to go too far into that because that's not the method that LTE uses, which is why where we're going with all this. So the next generation is something that they refer to as OFDMA, which is Orthogonal Frequency Division Multiple Access. So yeah, it's starting to get even more of a mouthful. So what this does is it uses subsets of subcarriers over the over the wide frequency range. And you can kind of think of it as a combination of FDMA and TDMA. And if you want a good explanation, there is a Wikipedia, not a Wikipedia, I'm sorry, presentation. It's a PDF in the links and uh, and yeah, have a, have a read through that. It's actually got some really nice visualizations. I mean, they're all you know, a visualization is only as good as its context, but it's it's pretty good. So if you're interested, then check it out. But suffice to say, it's a combination of FDMA and TDMA. But importantly, it's different from all the other previous methods because it uses positional information at the receiver. And this is where we come back to the option. It's not enforced, but there's an option to use uh, beamforming if you want to. So all the previous methods that, that we used, all the CDMA, TDMA, you know, direct sequence, frequency hopping, doesn't matter, they were all essentially passive in terms of being able to locate the user. They knew the user was somewhere in the sector or somewhere in the cell, but they didn't know exactly where and they didn't care. So the signal was broadcast to everyone in that cell, which used up all of that spatial radio energy. Right, so I just went to everyone in that sector and said, you know, you, the person I'm talking to, you know who I mean, Talk back to me when you're ready. Whereas the idea of uh, LTE is that you can now assign subcarriers specifically and cater their modulation methods based on the proximity to the transmitter. So, for example, the closer you are, you can actually give it a much higher encoding rate. So, whereas one one that's further away, you might do with um, sixteen um, Q, sixteen QAM QAM quadrature amplitude modulation. Whereas once closer to the actual transmitter, uh, because you've got more signal strength, you might go with 64 quam because you've got less noise between the transmitter and the receiver. Therefore, you can go to a higher encoding rate to get more data through. Hence, you'll get more data closer to the tower uh, as opposed to further away, which under traditional 3G was not the case. It was a fixed rate no matter where you were. So that's all really super cool. LTE, um, 5 megahertz channels typically, has about 512 subcarriers. Uh, 10 megahertz channels have about 1,024 subcarriers, typically. Uh, the re- there are reference signals transmitted between the transmitters and receivers to determine the channel coefficients uh, that help to determine the quality of the signal as well as its location or approximate location. Not very precise, but approximate. Now, there's an, again, uh, it's, uh, that, that PDF article, sorry, it's called LTE in a nutshell. I should have mentioned that. And that'll walk you through a lot of the details if you want to go, little details if you want to go more, want to know more. 
Okay, I'm getting I'm getting excited now because I'm almost up to the bit where you get to talk about peace cell. <laughs> it just, <laughs> it's I, a lot it's a, of stuff. It is it's a lot. A, look, it's a long road, but you know what? Um, if you don't start with the foundation, then the end result makes no sense. So well, bear with me. We're getting it all out here, and if people need to listen a couple times, then yeah, maybe that's sorry. what it takes. <laughs> sorry if I'm sorry if I'm talking fast. I'm excited. So no, it's go. a lot anyway. of stuff. It is. It's a lot of stuff, and it's but it's it's yeah. I'm hanging in there. We're getting it. We're getting it. I think it's okay. It's appearing to be less magical. Cool. Although we'll okay. see how P-Cell works. <laughs> so stick. Okay, cool. So everyone's you're still with me. That's great. Excellent. Okay. So I talked a little bit about SDMA, which is um, well, divisions in space. The idea is that not only is your cell uh, broken down into 180 degrees, but using different beam, beam forming methods, you can actually uh, define hotspots closer into the cell tower and further away. So the whole idea of space division multiple access comes into play. And uh, also with MIMO as well, people talk about MIMO, multiple input, multiple outputs, um, based on that idea where signals, the beams are formed to a specific set or cluster of users within a cell or a sector. So by further separating those users and defining a space, it's possible to fit more users in a given cell area than you had previously. So obviously that's provided they're in a suitable alignment. All right, if they're not clustered and they're not in an alignment that's suitable for that, well, you're screwed. But, you know, hey, it still works more often than it doesn't. And that's one of the other reasons LTE is faster. That plus it's got a heck of a lot more bandwidth. That helps too. Okay. And that is where I'm going to stop with LTE. And now we get to talk about PSAL. So what the hell? This all well and good, John, right? Wow. <laughs> but hey, all existing technology, nothing new there. Read through the link articles you want more information. PSAL is all about pre-coding. That's the thing to understand it is not some kind of revolutionary new way to modulate a radio wave that you know it, it doesn't use some new special law of physics that's been discovered the idea is it's about pre-coding the data to pre-correct the data before it's sent out or pre-correct the the radio waves before they're sent out so what that actually means is you know it's not as hard as you might think to get your head around so Artemis are the people that coined the term Dido, which is, you know, direct, uh, yeah, sorry, Dido. Oh, damn it. I forgot what it stands for already. But it's, it's not an industry term. What it really is, is coordinated multipoint transmission, COMP, which I mentioned, or COMP, which I mentioned at the beginning. Now, that's been around for most of the last decade, not quite a decade, but most of it. So this is not something that Artemis came up with on their own. It's something that everyone else has been sort of, you know, we're poking and prodding, throwing ideas around. Yeah, this could work, but, and there's a whole long list of buts, which we'll get to. So in theory, here goes the theory. If you can determine the exact amount of interference that will be encountered along a signal path, then you should be able to pre-code the signal such that it will cancel out that interference at a specific given point along that path. So in addition to that, it should be possible to overlay signals on the same frequency from two, from two, three, four, multiple points of origin and have them overlap in a specific point in space, giving you, I suppose, for the want of a better term, a hotspot in space. Now, Artemis, they call this a bubble. I mean, it's not bubble, obviously, but you know, it's nice to think of it like a bubble. It's a radio hotspot where all the source signals converge in phase, they're additive, all of the noises in their individual travels have been cancelled out, so you get a nice, clear, crisp, strong signal. 
And that's what it, that's what it really is trying to do. Now, I thought for two weeks about the best way to come up with an analogy for this because it's kind of a weird concept. The best I can come up with, I'll give you the analogy and I'll tell you where the analogy is wrong. <laughs> okay? Okay. Okay. <laughs> I've got to try something. So imagine a perfectly flat, smooth piece of sheet steel. Perfectly flat, perfectly smooth. It's on an angle. Then take your take a hammer, whatever, put a hundred dents in the damn thing, warp it slightly, but most importantly, put a small hole somewhere near the bottom in the middle. The hole represents your mobile device, represents the bubble, the hot spot, if you will. Now let's say we've got three P waves. So we're going to put three drops of water at the top of the sheet. At whatever spacing doesn't matter. So here's the idea. If you could map out and figure out the path that would take to get it from the top of the sheet such that it would ricochet off all of those little imperfections and make its way down towards the hole, use all the dents and bends and warps in the thing to guide the water from its starting point down into the hole, you would get three drops coalescing in the hole when they reached the hole. So all of that radio energy would find its way down there. Now, that's a little bit of a crazy analogy, but it gets you the visualization working in your head. You know what it makes me think of? Are, you know What's those that? little puzzles, um, little toys where it's, a, it's like a wooden box and you have some ball bearings in it and yeah. it's a maze and you can turn the, the X and Y axes, right? You yeah. like, and they all fall through and you miss stuff. <laughs> like that's kind of sad. I don't yep. know. Seems close to me. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit like that, I guess. But the the point is that in this case, you've got multiple. Ball. I guess there right. are versions of if you could bend that. that. Yeah, balls. if you could yeah. bend that thing. Yeah, yeah. The problem with the analogy is in the real world, there's always loss. So that means that there's no perfect sheet of steel. So obviously, as the drops travel down the piece of steel, some water's going to get stick. Some molecules will stick and stay behind. Some of it will stay in some of the little dents and cracks. And and parts of those, some of those molecules will never make it to the hole. And and that problem, and the next problem is, of course, surface tension. You see, water droplets hold together with water te- with surface tension. So mm-hmm. if there was no surface tension, you eliminate that, it would all just go flat and it would simply run down flat. And there'd be no droplets, no nothing. It'd just be a, a, a film sheet, of water yeah. molecules going down the sheet. And that's more like radio waves, sort of. Radio waves are expanding from a starting position and they expand in free space as they move, as they propagate. So again, that is where it's different. But if you excuse both of those little defects, the analogy sort of makes the point. I'm starting in three different locations with the same amount of energy. Not all of it's going to get to the receiver, but the more I add, the more drops of water I add, the more signal power I can eventually get. But the problems also should be obvious, and that is that there are some signal paths where I may not be able to get a path, or the path I'll get is so bad that the drop will never get to the hole. In other words, it's not possible to correct the signal to make it to the receiver. So it's not, you know, that's why I like the analogy is it's a good way of visualizing some of the issues. Every one of those dents, every one of those imperfections in that sheet of steel represent interference. But if you know what they are beforehand, you can correct for them. 
So here's the other here's the thing, right? In order to pull this off, every transmitter needs to know what are the, every other transmitter is doing in the same physical space, as well as in a very accurate location of the receiver with very accurate path information from each receiver, each transmitter, sorry, the, the P waves, as well as detail about the, how the source signal is being interfered with. So there's a lot of things you've got to know. In addition, each P wave has to be precisely located three-dimensional space for the triangulation to be accurate, assuming they are using triangulation. Can't see how they're doing it without that. Obviously, the more base stations, the more energy, the better result. Again, already said that. There's no details on how they're doing time synchronization. Now, the way GPS works is it uses atomic clocks to encode the data that's going out to the signal. All the atomic clocks were set when before they were launched from a common master clock. And those things are incredibly accurate to the point at which they can t- accurately test Einstein's um, you know, relativity theory and have done. And that's how they figure, figure it out. It's not about signal strength. It's about the encoded time on the clocks. And that's how the GPS figures out your position. It can't posi- figure out your position above ground without, without three satellites. Can't do it with one. Can't do it with two. Need three. Four is better. Five is better still. The more you add, the more accurate it gets. Again, unlike existing cellular. So you can't just have one Artemis transmitter and one P wave and all your problems are solved. You need to have a lot of them. Okay. The other really big issue, and perhaps the one part that I actually get hung up on more than that, assume you can get the GPS position of all the P waves, assuming the triangulation works, assume you can get the position accurate. Okay, that's all good, lovely. Guess what? My biggest problem is the noise, the interference. It's not continuous. There are all sorts of different kinds of noise. You've got continuous, semi-continuous interference or sporadic interference. So you get sporadic noise all the time. Anyone turns a flick on a light switch, every time you flick a light switch and there's an arc of electrical current, what that causes, that current surge causes RF energy to be released. It's only very small but it doesn't need to be that much in order to interfere with certain signals. And it'll spew that out across the frequency band. You know, the bigger the, the, bigger the contact, the bigger the switch, the more the noise, the more powerful the signal. You know, it's like um, 50 hertz hum or 60, 60 hertz hum. Mm-hmm. You know, old power supplies that would run at those frequencies that have bridge rectifiers in them. Well, they have switching noise. Switching noise creates a hum, you know, in the background. Yeah, that, that radio noise, you can tune, you can hear that. You can hear harmonics of that spread across the frequency range. Yeah, if it's a well-shielded device, that's fine. Switch mode power supplies, they switch 400 kilohertz. You tune, you get a spectrum analyzer out. That's going to mix with other signals, get in modulation products. Before you know it, you're going to have noise all over the place. So the thing is that that's actually sort of continuous noise. But, you know, you turn a switch on and off on a wall. You know, there's all sorts of different sources of radio. In a city, it's... Uh, Unbelievable. So how can you accurately compensate if it's always changing? And the key is time delay and latency. That's, that's the key. So how do you do this? The, the suggested, and this is where it gets into the how on earth would we do this part where I can't prove what they're doing. So the method of driving the feedback isn't known yet. But based on a few theories that I've read, and my understanding of LT is they think that there's a, there's a part of LTD that supports L, um, time division duplex. 
So TDDLT, TDDLTE, God, that's a tongue-twisting acronym, um, basically by returning the path information on that uplink channel when you are communicating with your base station. And not all LTE phones have that. And that's why I said they say claim one. It works with all LTE phones. This is the most likely way they're transmitting this information. You know what? Hey, I could be wrong. But if, if we assume that I'm, I'm not wrong and, and there are other people that have suggested this are not wrong, then that means that not all of them do support it. Not all phones will support it, even if they're LTE. And I would suggest that's probably the case. Newer phones will have it, like the 5S, 5C have got it. Anyway, um, also has to be supported by the, uh, the carrier as well. I am not going to go through the mathematics. And the reason I'm not going to go through the mathematics is because we're, we're heading up towards the two-hour mark. And honestly, it's speculative anyway. The new mathematics, and, you mean? <laughs> yeah, the new mathematics. And this is not a maths podcast. I'm sorry, but it's not. And if you want to listen to a maths podcast that talks about matrices and vectors and complex numbers and Laplace transforms, you come to the wrong place. Sorry, I'm not going to help you. Um, as much as I love maths and everything, um, pass. Suffice it to say, lots of matrices, determinants, and transforms later, and pre-coding can theoretically work mathematically, provided your source data is good. Now, Imran, in his article, goes through several examples using existing pre-coding techniques, but in the end, it's really speculative. He doesn't know for sure what they're doing. No one outside Artemis knows what they're doing. So I'm going to leave that bit there. Now, it works so well indoors because everything was line of sight between the transmitters and the receivers. There were minimal reflections. Presumably, we don't even know what frequency they're on. So I'm going to say presumably there's no reflections. And there's minimal interference between uh, from external radio sources. You know, you're inside a building. It's got some degree of shielding. For all we know, the rooms that they did the demos in had, had more shielding. I don't know. You don't know that. But I guarantee you, they'd be a little bit quieter than outside on top of a building where you're fully exposed. The path characteristics in those test rooms would be unchanged pretty much during that test. There's no one else interfering with that room. There's, it's, it's a pretty safe, quiet, relatively quiet environment. Now, movement of devices in that area would not change those compensated values very much either because you're not moving them very far. In the demos, he'd move them up and down and left and right. He really didn't move them more than a couple of inches. Yeah, so what happens if you go too fast? And some of the blogs address this. Oh, it works up to about 70 miles per hour. Again, theoretical, we don't know that. They didn't demo it at 70 miles an hour. So we don't know if that's true. However, you have to think that if you move too fast, it could lose its position lock on where you are or the channel state information could change too quickly for you to compensate. The other problem is that the data was likely traveling through a 10 gigabit or at least even a gigabit Ethernet switch, probably the same Ethernet switch in the demos. Now, that means you're going to have incredibly low latency. And that's great. That's what you need because every little delay means your, your sample data field, the interference on the path is getting stale. The longer you delay, the less useful that data is. Right, so what do you do? You need to keep your latencies as low as possible. Test environment, that's easy. Everything's wired up to the same damn switch, probably a gigabit switch, probably a 10 gigabit switch, whatever. Crunches it out, gets the data back, everyone smiles. You go and do that on a commercial telco's network, I guarantee the latency will not be that good. 
especially if you're using these awesome microwave backhauls. I mean, I guarantee you the latency on most microwave systems will not be quite as good. It'll be close, but not quite as good as fiber. So again, I find that that could be an issue. Finally, before we wrap up a conclusion, is there was a comment on an IEEE Spectrum article I linked in the show notes, and I got that link via Imran, so thank you, Imran. A guy commented by the name of Sojourner, and he, he says that the show notes, um, sorry, if you have a look at the show notes, there's a link here. His comment at the time I read it was the second comment down. Don't know if it'll still be the second comment later because, you know, comments threading and all that other rubbish. His comment starts with, I cannot believe IEEE Spectrum has posted this article. If there's one comment about all of this stuff that you want to read, it's that. His comment goes for about four paragraphs and he highlights a lot of the issues that I've highlighted, um, not all of them, some of them, but he also highlighted concern with scalability, centralized server and backhaul problems because it occurs to me all this data information coming back about the interference that's happening to the paths, well, all that data has got to get back to the server really quickly. It's got to be crunched in the server and then that has to go up to the transmitters for the signal to be transmitted back again. Every single link in that chain introduces latency. I'm not even talking about computational latency because you still got to run this through a whole bunch of FFTs, I'm assuming. I mean, I don't know. How does it work? It's a soft radio. There's no details. Okay. There's going to be some kind of series of mathematical transforms that are going to be done, matrix transformations, blah, 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 blah. All that's got to happen in a very low latency environment for it to work. And what about the backhaul? I mean, traditionally, these are highly compressed signals. You know, if it's voice, it's vocoded down to at most 13 kilobits a second. So, you know, you're going to have to have decent backhauls to these little P waves. And, you know, because, yeah, anyway. So I'm going to wrap this up now because we've been going a while. It's an amazing demo. But frankly, there's several things they could have done to cut back on obvious holes that they are being, well, that they could be accused of. And am I accusing them of them? I'm suggesting that they could be problems. So honestly, they could have done more. You know, I'm skeptical of Perlman's ability to maintain a business based on his track record. Even if what he creates is good and it works, I'm just concerned that from a business model point of view, whether or not the business will be sustainable, whether or not telcos will buy into this, whether or not he'll get the mass deployments because his track record has not been stellar in that regard. I have concerns about the latency that the system can handle in the backhaul and hence its feasibility in a real-world scenario. We've got a low latency environment, you've got complete control over the network, different story. But you know what? Maybe, maybe this drives an upgrade of the backhaul system. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it will. Maybe it's that good that it will. But for the moment, existing networks, just retrofitting that only, eh, not so convinced. I also have concern that all LTE devices would work with it. As I said, not all of them support some of the things that we th- that I think and a few other people have also th- have said are most likely going to be required. Can't validate that, but I would suggest that could be an issue. But we won't know until it's released really at a larger scale whether or not that is the case. So not whilst it may work with iPhone 5S and 5C, will it work with every LTE phone? I'm not sure it will. And, of course, I have concerns the technology will not scale and work with thousands of users. 
There are limitations and walls in these devices that they don't have not mentioned. And the question will be, do those walls and limitations, uh, do they counterbalance the cost up front of doing it and the additional bandwidth of doing it and using this method of transmitting using this method? So ultimately, watch this space. PCEL is not publicly available technology. There is no document that derives exactly how it works. And until such a document exists, until such time as in, in six to 12 months or longer that that information becomes publicly available, um, you know, I would see a foresee a time in the future where we would revisit it, this discussion as more facts come to light. But at this point in time, that's my take on it. That's my explanation of how I think it works. And hopefully that's been of benefit to somebody or interest. You still with me, Ben? I'm still with you. I was just just double checking um, on their site where they they claim to be protected by a broad portfolio of fundamental patents, both U.S. and internationally. Good for them. Which patents patents don't patents equal, that apparently people haven't been able to turn up. Yeah, patents. Yeah. Look, another point with patents, right? Yeah, even if that is true, I mean, patents do not equal income or revenue. Right. I should say. So it's all well and good to patent it. You still need someone to want to buy it. And here's the other thing. If the spectrum crunch is five years off, well, that's great. They've got five years to replicate. Someone has got five years to replicate this. You know what I mean? And I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, watch this space indeed. I, I, I sense a different business model evolving. I could see them going different ways. But yeah, it's, I'm skeptical too. It's... It's hard not to be look, you know, to be honest, it's easy to be skeptical when you've been doing this, you know, for a while because uh, my mind uh, I'm going to do a well, That's what I was going to ask you. I know we want to wrap up, but but so say you're wrong, where would you think you might be wrong? Like where where do you where would you know, where where is your own doubt or do you have any? My area of areas of doubt are really two. The first one is how much dynamically changing interference affects the the usability of this technology, this technique. Mm-hmm. It may well be that sporadic interference is not a problem and that you do not need, uh, like the channel paths have consistent coefficients such that you don't need to correct as frequently as I'm expecting you would. Perhaps in a real-world environment, it's not as bad as I'm thinking. Uh, that's the, my first area I'm, I'm not so sure of. And the other one I'm not so sure of is uh, the positioning and a positional accuracy, but I just, I keep turning it over in my head thinking, how else could they be doing it? You know, unless each Artemis receiver is set up like a GPS satellite is, you know, with a, with a, mm-hmm. with an atomic accuracy clock, which if they are, damn, they would be expensive. You know, so I, I don't know. Well, maybe I guess we'll get feedback are, on that. Maybe there's things that, you know, that's why I asked and what figured people might, yeah, it, might be able to explain things that we could be missing. Obviously, uh, there's a lot that I didn't explain and there's elements of this that I haven't gone into in, in depth because simply there's a lot to know. Yeah. And frankly, you know... Well, this was a big one for you. This was a lot of research, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I, I hit the, I've, I've hit a new record of research time on this one. But you know what? That's okay. Um, I find this subject to be fascinating and I would like nothing better than to be wrong <laughs> that this actually is the future, but you know what? It, it sounds like a bit of a like a pipe dream. But you know what? If you could solve the latency and you could get the accuracy good enough, then it should work. 
That's the thing. It should work. Theoretically, it should work. And if that's true, if this doesn't deliver, then maybe someday in 10, 15, 20 years' time, maybe someday this will work and maybe mm-hmm. this will be the future. And that's the sort of thing that I find the most fascinating beyond whether P-cell does actually work or not. Um, on a, you know, it is, it's an, an amazing, fascinating idea. And, and again, I'm going to pull a Star Trek reference here. I don't often do it, but I'm going to do it. Um, I think it was, um, it was either Star, the movie, either the Star Trek 2 or Star Trek 3, where um, uh, I think Sulu says um, out loud and Scotty's in the earshot, he says, uh, that's the Excelsior. It's supposed to have transwarp drive. You know, and Scotty a lot of glass and says, you know, yeah, if my grandmother had wheels, she'd be a wagon. And, you know, then that's when Kirk sort of like says, you know, young minds, fresh ideas. You know, it's like, well, maybe I am, this is the thing. I look at technology like this through the lens of someone that's been dealing with narrowband and CDMA technology for years. And I'm looking at this from a, from that angle. You know, am I, am I now the old dinosaur looking at this new technology and shaking my head saying, oh, these young, you know, this young technology is not going to work, you know? So I am mindful of that bias. And honestly, if they can pull off the restrictions that I think they've got, then theoretically it should be possible. But whether or not this product can deliver on what it promises, I am still skeptical. And watch this space. I know I'm going to be watching these guys very closely now. And I can't wait to see if this succeeds. And that's it. Cool. So yeah, if any of you guys want to talk more about this, you can find John on Twitter at John Chigi. The same on app.net, and you should check out John's site, techdistortion.com. Imagine if we have updates on this, there'll be some stuff there too. Um, if you'd like to send an email, you can send it to John at techdistortion.com, and I'm Ben Alexander. You can reach me on Twitter at theatluxfm. You can follow at Pragmatic Show on Twitter or at Pragmatic on app.net to see show announcements and other related materials. And just want to say a final thank you to Typeform for sponsoring this episode. Make sure you check them out, guys. Thanks for listening, everyone. And thank you, John. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for staying with me, everybody. 